Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space and the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on mummies, tiki, and horror. And I'm Nicholas Stajak, a pop culture scholar at Peplum Films, industrial music, horror studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I co-edited horror literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. For today's episode, we'll be discussing two short stories from Swords Against Cthulhu, an anthology of sword and sorcery fiction edited by Gavin Chapel and published by Rogue Planet Press in 2015. Our first story will be Modu, written by Mark Sims, and the second story will be Sword uh, of Lamar, written by Jason Scott Aiken. At the end of the episode, we'll share upcoming events. Uh, but first, uh, let's talk about why uh, we're talking about Swords Against Cthulhu on this podcast. All right. So, Swords Against Cthulhu is a it's an anthology of short stories that are supposed to be the merging of the sword and sorcery genre juxtaposed against the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, the concept behind this anthology, at least thematically, uh, makes sense. You know, the sword and sorcery and Cthulhu is like bread and butter together. Uh, Robert E. Howard, who's uh, basically the progenitor of the sword and sorcery genre, at least the pulpy variety, through his uh, Conan stories, was a contemporary, a correspondent, and a friend of Lovecraft, and their exchanges with each other influenced their respective writings. And then decades later, you'd have Lynn Carter, who would also write both Cthulhu Mythos stories and Sword and Sorcery stories, and even had a, a long-running of anthologies called the, the Flashing Swords Anthology. So I plucked this anthology up because of the general sword and sorcery theme, but as a scholar of peplum studies, I was curious if there were any sword and sandal stories in the anthology, and I could say that there are a few of shades of peplum in it. However, there is some problems with this anthology, and it's mostly in the quality department. Uh, both Cthulhu writers and sword and sorcery writers, the quantity of, well, inept writers in both camps, there's quite a lot. And the number of stories in Swords Against Cthulhu that are competent, interesting, and inventive are greatly outnumbered by the poorly edited, generic, or even outside uh, the genre stories. Um, there, there's some problems with this anthology. Uh, you can overtly tell that this anthology is going to have problems if like, you go to the back and you see the author's bios, you know, standard practice in an anthology like this is every author has like a three to four sentence bio. You know, hi, I'm so-and-so, I worked on this, I like this, you can find me here, boom, done. There is there is a bio at the end of this book that's three pages long. And that's kind of a sign uh, you have of an editor that can't say no to his writers. Um, because, you know, a normal editor would say, nope, please trim that, please trim that. And just by extrapolating from that, you kind of apply it to other stories in this uh, anthology that they're probably were accepted as is without any a lot of feedback back and forth. Um, so, you know, trying to instead work for a better product, that's just the hints I'm getting. The, the overall book does kind of have <laughs> a great hand of self-publishing tactics to it. Um, the, the problem is, is also, 
I think there's a market for such a book. I mean, recently, uh, uh, Robert M. Price was going to continue the Lynn Carter line of Flashing Swords. Uh, in fact, they had a book right out uh, about to be released, but turns out uh, Robert Price kind of wrote a very sexist <laughs> introduction, and a lot of the authors pulled out, rightfully so, um, which is unfortunate. Be well, no, it's not unfortunate that they pulled out. It's a good thing they did, but unfortunate that the line basically could have been resurrected and, and done some really cool stuff with the sword and sorcery genre, and, you know, combining it with the Cthulhu stuff. Again, they, they go well together. So there's a market out there, and I think Swords Against Cthulhu you know, helps tap into that, just not as competently as it could. However, that said, I do think Swords, of Swords Against Cthulhu, its heart's in the right place, and there are a handful of great stories in the anthology. And for this podcast, we're going to talk about two of them. So, our first short story, Modu, by Mark Sims. Modu is a young warrior who lives in a small island nation in the Pacific in prehistory times. Periodically, his village is invaded by soldiers from Um Ryla, who abduct the inhabitants and take them away on their great boats. After one such invasion, Modu's mother conjures an aquatic warrior who gifts Modu of a magical ancient sword called the Bite of the Abyss. Modu trains with the sword, becoming an adept fighter. Years later, soldiers from Um Ryla return and Modu combats them. And while he's able to defeat many of them, their numbers are far too great, and he, along with many of his people, are captured and ferried to the dungeons of Ryla. There, the high priest god of Cthulhu, Lord Obsidi, takes interest in Modu and his sword, and forces him and his people into an arena filled with water and ships in an ancient battle recreation. Modu begins to pray to Dagu, the true king of the sea, and Obsidi taunts him by tossing Modu's mother's head at him. Enraged, Modu begins to attack. The tide of the battle is eventually turned in Modu and his islanders' uh, favor when the sea people of Dagu barge into the arena and battle Obsidi's men. A massive fist-like wave smashes into the viewing box that held Obsidi. Victorious, Modu and his people begin their trek back to their island home. So, Michelle, thoughts? What were, what were your general impressions of this story? Okay, so um, out of all the stories, I would say this is probably the best and most well-written story. Uh, it had a good balance of genres between the sword and sandal uh, in the latter half of the book or story versus the first portion which is definitely more Cthulhu-oriented. Cthulhu um, Sims does a, a beautiful job showing, not telling, particularly in the opening scenes. He is very poetic in his word choices. There's a beautiful cadence to the story and you stay hooked. He spends uh, a good portion of his story just progressing through time and and I found myself very interested in that progression of time which is not always easy to do. Uh, as a result I thought that this story was engaging and entertaining and a very good example of Swords and Sandal and Cthulhu mashup. Uh, Nick what about you? So this story hands down is definitely the best story of the anthology. It's it's really good. It actually it hits all the <laughs> the things that 
I really love, not just in a story, but just in general. Um, one, it's an excellent, excellent take on the sword and sorcery genre. Uh, instead of kind of keeping it traditional, more medieval-oriented, it's oceanic-oriented. And it works. Uh, there's actually lots of tiki elements in the story as well, which, of course, I really like. Um, the Pacifica setting, you know, aligns very much with the, the elements of Lovecraft. Uh, you know, Lovecraft has a lot of stuff set in the islands of the Pacific, and this the story definitely um, capitalizes on that. But it doesn't go into full pulp territory. You know, there isn't talk of, like, Lemuria and all these kind of other pulpy things out there. Um, I feel a little bad because the author, Mark Sims, I actually want to see what else he's written. In fact, you know, because the story is such a highlight of the book, his name's even mentioned on the back of, you know, here's the, the best authors in our anthology. I can't find anything about this author online. No websites, nothing on Amazon or anything. So wherever you are out there, Mark Sims, uh, keep, keep doing what you're doing because the story is definitely... Uh, the, the high water mark, <laughs> figuratively and literally, of this anthology. Um, I'm just actually reading his bio in the back of the book. Um, he's probably out hiking. He's a lifelong mountaineer and a chef from the Sierra Nevada mountains, um, who now resides in Colorado. So um, please sit at the table a little more often and write more more tales. You're very good at it. <laughs> so. I guess the first thing is uh, to talk about why is the story successful, and something uh, I just kind of alluded to is it's not a traditional Lovecraft Cthulhu story, and it's not a traditional sword and sorcery story, yet there's enough subverted elements from both that you could see it, but it's different. So... Starting with the sword and sorcery genre, again, it's it's not a medieval setting. You know, a lot of uh, sword and sorcery tales are very medievalish. There's a castle of a king. There's lots of dungeon crawling. Um, are you know bar, you know barbarians with big old battle axes and whatnot trying to destroy an evil sorcerer? And the thing is, like those elements isolated are in this story, but but they're different and tweaked. You know, instead of a kind of a, a medieval uh, feudalistic land, it's an island nation. Um, you know, there's magic here, but it's, you know, very shamanistic. You know, his, his mom's, like, engaged with a lot of, uh, you know, herbs and conjuring up of you know, critters from the sea and whatnot. You know, there's swords and whatnot, but, again, I, I, I don't see the, you know, the, the iconic images of people in big old shiny plate mail or anything like that. This is... Uh, it's very, um, you know, different. But again, it works. It's one of the reasons why it's a standout story is because it's doing something different with the sword and sorcery tropes. Well, and I think Sims does a very uh, admirable job of really contrasting the two groups of people. Because Modu is a, a native, he is more grounded in tradition versus the men, I'm going to say conquistadors or the Spaniards with their, they, they do actually have uh, armor, um, they're, they're very much the outsider, they're coming in, they're, they're destroying culture, um, you know, and it's just kind of picking up on some of, the, of our world history uh, in his story that I think works very well. I, I like the fact that he didn't try to set this in 
medieval times. He also didn't take the modern era route that we've read with with success with like Nick Mamatas's uh, Sabbath story, and even the Highlander series, which kind of flips from you know uh, the time that we have Connor McLeod uh, or Duncan McLeod. Which one was first? Oh crap! Well, anyway, um, the McLeod. <laughs> the clan, you know, and the story starting in early medieval times versus what's happening in modern times. Um, so I do like that he definitely took a different route with this story, and it does work so well. The the other aspect that uh, this uh, story draws from, aside from, you know, mostly sword and sorcery, the ending is very sword and sandaly, and we'll talk about that in a second, but... It also has shades of sword and planet as well. You know, the Modu, he's basically a super-powered sword master, and it kind of follows a sword and planet template. You know, he becomes very adept at what he does. He's, he's very overpowered. <laughs> but like most sword and planet stories, he's eventually captured of a lot of other people, and but he also easily escapes as well. It's very, uh, in a very Lynn Carter fashion, very Jandor of callisto where, you know, basically every other chapter he's captured, but he's able to rally folks together and boom, escape, only to be captured again. Okay, so he doesn't keep getting captured over and over again, but it does follow a little bit of that template that um, the sword and planet genre uh, set. Um which, again, I think is a put, put to good use of genre tropes into something a bit more uh, less cliche and a bit more uh, interesting. Yeah, and I would add that Sims doesn't force the elements. He allows them to just weave within the story uh, that doesn't make it feel like it's been contrite um, like some of the other stories, I did feel that maybe they had been written for some other anthology, and then they saw this call, and they're like, oh, okay, I'll just change this and this, and, and I'll just kind of shoehorn, you know, this or that element in. And I didn't feel that with this story, uh, which was a, a breath of fresh air, honestly. You know, when you say contrite, I, I think one of the biggest cliches in a lot of fantasy writing is the uh, the chosen one story Me- meaning that the main character is the hero uh, the conqueror you know he's gonna stop the evil warlord priest king whatever out there just by sheer fact that they're the chosen one you know by their birthright the stars aligned whatever reason they're the chosen one and it's kind of um uh what should it's tiresome. I mean, I, I, it's, it's good escape is fair for common readers like myself. Who, let's just be honest, in our day to day life, we all wish we were something a little bit better than ourselves. You know, instead of going to work nine to five, we wish that we could be plucked up and you know go on a big yo know, space adventure or conquer a dragon and stuff. And the fact of the matter is, that's not happening. The only way that will happen is again if some some stars aligned and you know some sort of space deity came along and said you're the chosen one here's your sword you got magic powers inside you only you could save the universe and again it's good escape is fair because readers can picture themselves as that oh if it can happen to this character it can happen to me um i bring that up because this story almost reads like it's a chosen one story 
but it's not. It is a coming of age of adventure, but in in a lot of you know fantasy chosen one stories, that's you know the character starts out you know uh, young in a, in a village. The village gets ransacked. Oh, how did this happen to me? Well, take the sword and run and find your destiny. And the story has those kind of hallmarks. You know, Modu starts off very young. His his village is ransacked. He gets a magic sword and all that other stuff. But if you really think about it, though, um, it didn't have to be him. Um, it actually could have been any other person in that village that could have taken up the mantle to be the protector of the village. It's, the only thing special about Modu is that his mom hints at his father as some sort of of undersea king or critter or something but even modu himself challenges that because there's a line in the story that he even says that his mom you know looks through you know hazy you know drug-filled eyes because she's doing a lot of you know herbs medicine drugs whatever and, and it makes sense she's kind of a shaman she's casting her spells she's doing her conjurations but you know when she says something like oh your father came from the sea you know it, it it both implies that well maybe he is kind of a chosen one because his father is a great and powerful zeus-like person but on the other hand maybe she's bsing and and that's just you know she's bsing not not maleficently this is part of you know her legend or you know what her magic is telling her or how she's interpreting it or she's doing a lot of tropical drugs and her mind's addled so even the main character even kind of challenges his own birthright um i guess what i'm trying to say with all this is you know the chosen one story removes a lot of agency from the characters because by virtue of being the chosen one they've lost their agency they're now just on a a rail uh, shooter of sorts, use a video game term, just to get from point A to point B. And without Modu being overtly the chosen one, he has agency, I think. And I think that's kind of an overlooked thing to juggle when you read stories like this. Um, yeah, I would add to that sense of agency where in the first, uh, first third of the story, kind of the, the first act... Uh, where, because it isn't a chosen one, we do actually get kind of that behind the scenes, the the childhood to adulthood story of Modu in a very fast pace, uh, with very little dialogue descriptions that actually show us that he does have to learn. He's just not born with the talent he actually has to groom himself to become what it is that he needs to become in the third act and i think even as he's growing up even allude to because he has a brother at one point that gets taken away that you know perhaps his brother was on this path at some point as well to be a protector of the town and maybe the town could have had multiple protectors at some point they just never felt the need to you know you have that kind of uh you know isolationic you know, kind of tribe on an island where, you know, outside world influences is so minimal that, you know, maybe the need hadn't arrived until now. And again, it comes back to, you know, Modu, is he special? He's kind of special. We want him to be special because he's the hero of the story, but he's not that special because any other character probably could have picked up this mantle, trained, uh, used this magic sword, been very good at it, and, you know... And again, I say that, and it sounds like I'm kind of robbing the main character of something special, but I don't think I am. He's special because he's actually able to 
grow, go through character development. We get his thoughts of everything. And it makes him... I guess what I'm trying to say is it makes him more interesting. It makes him more complex. It's definitely a showing and not telling. A lot of the other stories in this book, uh, especially the one written by the person with the three-page bio, basically says, yeah, I grew up in a town with a whole bunch of other rough pirates, and ergo, I am a rough person. Okay, I, I guess that works, and it probably works for a short story, but here's a short story that doesn't do that, and instead we have great character development, great character evolution and progression. And so, again, he's special without being special, he becomes special. And because of that, we become invested in Modu. Yeah, and that's really important because these stories uh, average usually maybe like anywhere from four to maybe like 12 pages. This particular story, I think, was like about nine pages in length. And to develop a character, you do have to rely uh, to some degree on the tropes and stereotypes that have already been established. And I think that Sim does that, but in a very subtle way, so that we don't feel like we're reading the same story yet again um, in a different uh, setting. I actually, uh, going beyond that, I think that he, Sims, uses a lot of visual cues in a very nice way. Uh, when I was reading through this story, I was reminded of many, many films out there. Uh, Nick, probably you as well. Right away, uh, Ridley Scott's um, Gladiator. Yes, we'll be talking about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Spartacus, any of the other, like, Coliseum set uh, films. But I was also reminded of the film Life of Pi with the tiger. And I, I, don't, I don't know if you remember the scene, Nick, but the tiger uh, chooses to stay on the little canoe while the, the young boy goes up on this paradise island. And during the day, it looks beautiful. It's, it looks unassuming, but at night, I mean, it really... It glows, there's a magic about it, but it's dangerous and it's poisonous and it's deadly. And I, I Sims, you know, it drops in these little things so that depending on your background and your interest in different films, you're likely to kind of pull in those, those visual notes of your own viewing that you can bring into the story and kind of expand your own um, imagination as you're reading the story. And that's something that I actually really liked about this. See, aside from Gladiator, I was bringing in Blue Lagoon and Return to Blue Lagoon. Less less the uh, the sexy time on the beach. But, but, you know, I have a soft spot for those kind of uh, island uh, tiki-type films. You know, and Blue Lagoon, you know, they're basically, they're not wearing too much and they're running around and well, that's what Modu's doing. You know, they, they do spend a little bit of time talking about his body, about, you know, he's he's not wearing too much, he's got his magic sword on him, and he's kind of in an island paradise. There's an actual scene, um, talk about uh, visualness. I, I, I want to say maybe it was in a Star Wars film, like one of the prequels or whatnot, but there's a scene when they're making their escape from the town that's just been ransacked, where they, they dive into a lake full of luminescent jellyfish and swim through it. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I, I could see that, like, a sequence occurring in a video game or something that you gotta you kind of swim through. I would also add, I like the terms that he came up with with regards to the sword. 
Um, he names the sword, uh, where is that? Oh, Bite of the Abyss. And then the battle in the Colosseum, I think they're reenacting what's called the Battle of the Brine. Just nice mythology is added in there uh, that just makes it seem more authentic. The funny thing about that sword, you know, in the story, the sword is magical, it's special, everyone takes an interest in it, but kind of complementing what we're talking about, the titular character, the sword is both special but not special. They, they make a point of saying, you know, in the past, there are thousands of these swords. You know, at one point, this was not a special sword. It was used by, you know, the various denizens under the ocean um, to do what they do. It was a common thing to have a, <laughs> a magic sword. It's just that through the ages and whatever, it happens to be the only one left. And in a way, this magic sword is is basically a, an extension of or an incarnation of Modu himself. Yes, definitely. Uh, there is one other film that I want to touch on um, with regards to this uh, story, and that is F.W. Murnau's South Pacific silent film, Taboo. Yes! Which really brings in those themes of tradition, clashing with modernism, uh, colonialism. I think we get a lot of those themes in this story as well, but without being necessarily beat over the head uh, with those themes. It's very subtle. Um, you can pick up on them, and then it, it gives you, you know, things to ruminate over after you've read the story. I'm just going to say Wild the Women of Wongo, but Taboo is a better choice. That's why you have me around. <laughs> Now, we brought it up a couple times, and that's Gladiator. Now, as a, as a sword and sandal scholar, when we got to the end of the short story, this is kind of what I was looking for in this book, was the shades of sword and, sword and sandal. There, there's an overlap between sword and sandal and sword and sorcery, especially when you get down to the kind of the, the barbarian aspect. A lot of sword and sandal stories, you know, they have Hercules or Ursus or all these other kind of strong men. And the Conan stories, they're basically those. They're just, they throw in a bit more magic. If you try to Venn diagram sword and sandal, sword and sorcery, you get all this kind of weird crossover, you know, between, you know, biblical stuff and mythic stuff and historic epic stuff that's not magical, but then you have magical stuff like Jason the Argonauts, but you also have big, beefly, shirtless guys with swords. And it's kind of an interesting you know, what constitutes what. In fact, a lot of folks would consider, you know, the, the sword and sorcery wave of films in the, the early 80s, the, the Conans, the Red Sonias, um, and like to be, you know, an extension of Peplum, and I, I would as well. Uh, bringing that all back, the ending of this story is Gladiator. In fact, it's basically, it's, it's kind of a recreation of a recreation. In the movie Gladiator, the first big battle that Russell Crowe has to deal with when he becomes a gladiator, um, he, he's brought to Rome, he's in the Colosseum of a whole bunch of other gladiators, is they have to reenact the Battle of Zama. And in that story, you know, in reality, you know, they lose, but of course, you know, Russell Crowe as Maximus is able to, you know, in quickly 30 seconds make everyone, you know, a soldier and train him on, you know, battle tactics. And they actually turn the tide and, and win this battle. Uh, and the sequence at the end of Modu is this exact same scene. It's just that instead of, you know, the, the arena, instead of being in the dirt, is now, it's a maritime battle, uh, which, which 
it took me a while to kind of visualize, but once I did, I'm like, that's actually kind of cool, basically, to have arena with some water and boats in it, and you're kind of recreating a nautical battle. Um, but the, the ending is total sword and sandaly, and it... it and it's awesome. I mean, again, the big difference is Russell Crowe is able to get all the people to work together for a greater good. That doesn't actually happen in this story. M Modu basically, you know, becomes, you know, superpowered himself and starts, you know, cracking some skulls. But he's actually eventually going to lose. It isn't until, you know, after his prayers are answered and that the, um, you know, the people, the, the denizens of uh, Daegu, you know, come up and come to the rescue. So it's a bit of a deus ex machina. I kind of have mixed feelings on it. Like, I'm not a big fan of deus ex machinas, but on the other hand, it, it works. You know, again, he's praying to his various deities and they answer his call. I mean, that's no different than other sword and sorcery tales when a, a wizard conjures a spell or a cleric, you know, prays to his deity for a miracle. So it's there. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a great, peplum sequence that I wasn't expecting in a basically a tropical sword and sorcery tale. I would add to that, uh, just in, in listening to your, your points there, Nick, I, I think it is fascinating that in the first battle that Modu has to fight, that's when the, the um, I'm going to say the soldiers come to his island, he tries to battle them, he's initially very successful and then he's overrun and it's like the traditions are overrun by the colonialism and then in the second big battle that happens it's on in an, in this huge arena it's basically tradition coming back and fighting overpowering and ultimately defeating that colonialism um, that was just something that i noted and and those are very similar narrative beats that we see in gladiator and other um sword and sorcery so that's another aspect i would say i, I think to conclude our discussion on modu something we've only we've kind of skirted around by accident is the actual lovecraft elements in this story um even though that the story takes place near ryla i believe it actually takes place on ryla at some point they don't make it too overt but you know when the when the main character when the main villain refers to himself as the high god priest of Cthulhu <laughs> and, you know, the leader of the Um Ryla people, you kind of infer that they're on Ryla. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is the Lovecraft elements, they're not as overt. They're there, but they're different. Like, you'd almost expect at some point a giant Cthulhu to rise because the stars are right and he's going to gobble up all those people and, and if i may there's plenty of other stories in swords against cthulhu where that happens where a big tentacly monster comes up from the pits and goes blah, 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 and feasts upon people and it's scary and eldritch and all that other stuff but that doesn't happen in here there, there is no you know all the main bad guys are are more or less normal people in a weird sort of way the only monsters are the denizens under the water that uh, of Daegu and you know obviously you know Daegu is a play on Dagon but in Lovecraft stuff you know Dagon stuff that, that's bad you know those are the Innsmouthers they're you know they worship Dagon they're doing evil stuff and in in this story you know 
they're not called, you know, the children of Dagon or anything. They're called Daegu. So it kind of adds this element of, are they one and the same? Is it just wordplay? Is it coincidence? Maybe, or retcons it, maybe in the past that there was, you know, two societies. One would split off, become the children of Dagon. You know, that's, you know, names change over time. That there's a, a good variety and a not good variety. And Modu just happens to be worshipping the good variety. I don't know. It's, it's definitely a good interplay with the uh with established lovecraft stuff but without going all out you know silly or gimmicky or uh cameo-y i mean how many video games or stories do we play that you know they'll just offhandedly say oh that inn is called the silver key oh the we're on cthulhu street or oh there's a giant cthulhu that came from the mountains or whatever and this story doesn't dive into that and i think because it doesn't you know, it allows it to stand on its own. It's 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 Cthulhu without being beat over the head with it. Yeah, uh, and that was uh, one of the points I made at the beginning of the uh, discussion was the fact that Sims does bring about a very balanced uh, balanced cadence to the story narrative and the blending of these two genres in a, in a beautiful way. He does an excellent job uh, and is one of the best examples in this, in this book. So with that, we are going to take a short break and listen to a little bit of Ring Bearers and Caligon from the album Dragons before returning to discuss the second story. Welcome back to our second short story, The Sword of Lamar, by Jason Scott Atkin. One summer evening in Arkham, an elderly woman, Agnes, looks out across the city as the setting sun gives way to the twilight hour. Agnes has been reading and slips into sleep. In her dream state, Agnes becomes Nuja of Lamar, an elite warrior of Dekos facing off against the Enutos. With her trusty otherworldly sword, Obserbora, and her warrior troops, the Arm Armscada, they fight not one but two epic battles to protect Dekos. After Nuja cuts down the Anutos war chief, the Anutos retreat back to reveal a shaman amongst their ranks, who is chanting over pot over a pot he is holding. He emphasizes one word, Tupigoth, slamming down the pot at the Armscada, a black, acidic substance, explodes, revealing an eerie and lethal tentacle creature. Only Nuja and her 
uh, Asabora are able to defeat the Tupi Goth. Nuja looks back at Dacos and sees a cannibalistic group stalking towards Dacos. In her mind, she remembers that the uh, Panakuk manuscripts had indicated that these creatures had been exterminated by her ancestors, the Zamnarmians. Just as she is regaining, regaining the will to fight this new threat, she looks up into the heavens and sees the star Polaris, and all goes dark. She awakens, strapped to a hospital bed. Agnes suffered a stroke during which she took out quite a few orderlies with her cane. She will not be charged as long as she spends some time in the Arkham uh, Sanatorium. Agnes still cannot speak an effect of the stroke, but she is feeling well chuffed at having stolen paper and a pen so she can document her story, not just story. Nick, what is your thought of this story? It's a fun story. Uh, uh, is it as good as um, Modu? Probably not as good as Modu. This one is definitely pure action. I feel like I'm watching a an anime scene. Uh, probably a lot of uh, anime films out there, you know, they have those sequences of... You know, you have the your protagonist who's just a total Goku from Dragon Ball Z or someone else, and there's a, a horde, a huge horde of monsters coming, and they just go, yeah, and take them all down. And you, you like that. You like that when you're watching an anime like that. And I think um, uh, Sword of Lumor captures that uh, type of uh, feeling. In fact, this probably should have been a, <laughs> a short anime uh, uh, film. Okay, uh, so, uh, well, let's start with the, where this fits within the Lovecraft, because... Well, wait, wait, hold it, did you like it? Oh, did I like it? Yeah, well, Yeah, actually, I did. Um, you know, it is quite a contrast from Modu, which is more, um, a quieter piece, uh, except for your climatic battle, um, but I actually enjoyed this. This was a nice contrast, because, like you say, Nick, it was all action, um, it was very engaging. I was able to follow the battles, which are sometimes, you know, it takes a finesse to write a battle scene. and um, It's hard to write swordplay. There's a reason why is. authors go to workshops that say, please tell me how to write a sword battle, or else you get what I think a lot of inept sword and sorcery authors are, where, you know, they read a lot of Tolkien, but they probably say things like, he parried, he parried, he thrust, he won that battle, he slashed upward and took off his head and moved on to the next person. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, knowing that, um, I did feel that uh, Atkin really set not one, but two great battle scenes uh, back to back with each other, and it really works. I mean, I was fully engaged in the story from start to end. Um, so, yes, I did actually like it. Um, you know, and, and in the grand scheme of the collection, I would say that these two stories were the best ones out of, out of the entire collection. Um, I, I, I would agree, hence, hence why we're talking about these two on the podcast, folks. Uh, yep, yep, these two on the podcast. So, um, I think starting with where this fits within the Lovecraft Mythos is is a great starting point with regards to this discussion, since so much of it is set within Lovecraft's dreamlands. Like Nick said, um, this is a based 
and actually a prequel to one of Lovecraft's first stories called Polaris. It was written in 1918 and then published in 1920. Um, he mix, uh, Atkin mixes in quite a bit. Uh, in the original story Polaris, there really is a one-sentence, I'm not going to say it's a throwaway, but there is a reference to uh, Dacos being defeated by the Inutos. So from that, that little germ... Atkins came up with this story, books in, book ends it with Agnes, who is our, our narrator through the entire story, is either Agnes or Arnuja the Wire, and it works. It, it borrows heavily from Polaris, where um, they, I guess what I'm trying to say is in both Polaris and Sora Lamar, folks get to the dreamlands the same way. Mostly in the dreamlands, you get there by, well, sleeping and entering the dreamlands and going down the, the flight of stairs and so on and so forth. So, so forth. Both in Polaris and Sword of Lamar, it's slightly different. The characters actually become other characters. They actually take over uh, the body of another person in the dreamlands. Um, in Sword of Lamar, the main character is, a, is an aged woman in Arkham, um, who, you know, confined to her house, you know, I think she's like 70-some-odd years old, you know, she, her, her time is spent on her balcony looking around and kind of taking it all in, and, and then one night she just kind of, you know, wakes up in the dreamlands, and instead of being a 70-plus-year-old a woman, is now a big warrior queen leading an entire army against some invading forces, and it's very similar to what happens in Polaris. Uh, as guys in his house, you know, he keeps looking at the stars every night, and slowly over time, he becomes one of the denizens of this town. Now, uh, and, and it's a stark difference between, you know, what happens in, like, say, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadoth, where um, uh, Randolph Carter consciously makes an effort to go to the, the Dreamlands. He does his prep work and all, all the other stuff. So I, I would say almost that this story is, it's not necessarily a retelling of Polaris because it's different characters under different circumstances, but it's like, could I rewrite Polaris and make it better? And I think that's what's happening here because the original Polaris is... Uh, get, there's a reason why, uh, you know, it's an early Lovecraft story. It's not as good as other Lovecraft writing. You know, he's still, you know, Lovecraft's still working on his craft. And Polaris is a very convoluted story. I actually had to read it twice and then read the Wikipedia synopsis and say, oh, that's what's really going on here. While Sora Lamar is more straightforward. Now, it's straightforward, but it's not spoon-feedy per se. I don't need to be spoon-fed, but it's just a more straightforward, clear, concise story that has the magic that Lovecraft is putting into his story. Michael Moorcock's uh, book, uh, Sojin Swordsman, almost operates the exact same way as this story does, where... Uh, in the introduction to that story, there's a guy, I think he's like in World War One or two. I can't rem remember, I don't have my book handy on that one, but he's on Earth, he dies in battle. He's not necessarily reincarnated, he just becomes Sojan on another planet, and he's a mercenary for hire and goes on his mercenary adventures. And I, I see that kind of Moorcock Sojan aspect happening in Sword of Lamar. Yeah, I think... What also works well with this story is that while he, Atkins obviously went back, read Polaris and thought, okay, how can I make it better? I actually like the fact that he 
uh, brings in a woman character uh, to the story. That's not, you know, as we all know, Lovecraft wasn't fond of putting women in his story, and particularly not as a main character. And I think Atkin, uh, by putting Agnes in this story, adds a, a, a freshness to the Lovecraftian uh, contemporary writers. Um, I know that we do see more. We do see more of it, um, and read more of women being in the stories. But but it's, I, if I may, it's not just a woman. This is an old woman, you know. Yes. Uh, so she's a marginalized within marginalized. I mean, they even allude to at the end of the story, like her children are plotting to take away her property and stuff. So you know, kudos for not just putting a woman as your main person, but an aged woman that, for all other purposes, you know, is someone who's usually removed from society, removed from being a part of things. Yeah, and you, you were reading my notes because that's oh. that's part of uh, a point that I wanted to make is the fact that because she starts as, she's an older character. She's like 75. She's living in her brownstone. She's on her own. On her, own. her husband has passed away. Um, I think that Atkin does a wonderful job dovetailing in the idea of the elderly. And that that is also something that we don't always, you know, get to read a lot of. Uh, an elderly woman um, who is dealing with elderly issues. She's rereading um, The Scarlet Pepernel, which is uh, definitely kudos for me since I love that <laughs> book. I love that movie. So extra checkpoints for that. Um, but, you know, we get uh, the subtle understandings of her of her life. Uh, she's lonely. She is. Uh, she doesn't have her partner anymore. Uh, but she also embodies what I believe we all think about as we get older: the fact that where is our place in community? She obviously is now isolated from the bigger community. And how does she have an answer to that? Well, Nuja, uh, her her alter personality in this story. Um, as a, as a person uh, that is getting older as well, I appreciated the fact that Atkins spent a little time in a very subtle way giving some nods to the fact that we all want to have a sense of community. We all want to have our moment to shine, to be some person that's integral to the community. And that is one of the things that really hooked me to the story and just kept me along because then when Nuja went, uh, became, came on the scene as this young warrior, I still had Agnes in the back of my mind. And I thought that was a very powerful way for Atkin to deal with this story. You, you know what this story is kind of a combination of? Bubba Hotep yep. and Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch. The, the big difference is Bubba Hotep, you know, Elvis stays as an elderly Elvis. He doesn't have to transform into a younger person to stop the mummy. But uh, while in this story, you know, she actually has to become a younger person. On the other hand, it's sort of like Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch, which was a disappointing film. I had high hopes for that one. But it was ambitious. But, you know, you have this woman who's thrown into a... Uh, an asylum that she reimagines as a cabaret that in turn she reimagines that she partners up with a whole bunch of other warrior women to go on these different adventures to stop, you know, uh, other armies and malefactors out there. 
if anything, Sordalamar is probably indebted to both uh, stories, the, the idea of what is the role of the elderly in our society and, you know, escapism uh, as well. How do you become a, a, a hero? In fact, we were talking a little bit about in, a, in the other story, uh, Modu, you know, the aspect of uh, a chosen one. You know, we wish that there was a concept of a chosen one because it gives us hope that we might, ourselves might be a chosen one. Um, in this story, Agnes is not a chosen one, but I think the character that she becomes is a chosen one, and she's able to become that person through, you know, entering the dreamlands in a very Zack Snyder, sucker punchy style. But at the same time, it still feels like she kind of keeps her agency and who she is as who she is, as you would say, as the Bruce Campbell as an elderly Elvis in Bubba Hotep. And I would also say Bubba Hotep keeps that pulpy element uh, that is in the Lovecraft stuff as well. So it's a, it's a nice little, I think, uh, comparable aspect of it. Yeah, I would agree. I, I actually liked the, the bit of humor, uh, particularly at the end when uh, we're pulled back to the modern Arkham environment. Agnes is 75 years old. She's strapped to a bed. A hospital bed um, the doctor is relaying that she's taken out a number of orderlies and I just had to smile at that because that that kind of lightened and balanced out two very epic battles that we've just read through several pages several I'm gonna say you know half a dozen pages or something like that that I felt were on par with like Lord of the Rings and some of the battles in that film um, and and Tolkien's books, so I felt that the the play at the end um, was nicely balanced against the rest of the story. Um, I will say uh, I like your comment about the dual workings. Um, I want to mention that in the Scarlet Pimpernel, um, for those that are not familiar with the story, we have Sir Percy uh, Blackney who plays this kind of ineffectual aristocrat who is in actuality the Scarlet Pepernell who goes off to save uh, lots of people from the uh, guillotine in France. And um, Agnes actually uh, identifies with the wife that she, uh, you know, is just as strong as the Scarlet Pepernell. Um, because she is, she doesn't hide behind masks. She's engaging. She is um, doing what she can in the story, uh, not by not hiding behind this dual uh, uh, characterization. So um, I, I do like that. I, I thought it was actually a nice little plug in there. I think uh, one of the things. Because, you know, Scholar Pimpernel is kind of a foreshadowing of, you know, dual identity here. That the, the Dreamlands offers characters something that the real world doesn't. Most of the time. Like, in Polaris, the, the protagonist, you know, wants to remain there and uh, do what he does. And when he gets back to the real world, he's, you know, sad. You know, he, he refuses to believe he's back in the real world. That the real world's actually the dreaming world. Um, and sort of Lamar, it offers the opportunity for Agnes to become a hero, to, to save the, the various cities and whatnot. And for Randolph Carter, you know, initially, you know, the Dreamlands is offering, you know... Um, 
this grand city that he he's questing the entire novel to get to. The, the, however, the big difference is, is at the end, Randolph Carter realizes that he really wants to go back to the real world, that the Dreamlands isn't offering what he wants, but, you know, back in New England areas where he wants to be. But something to keep in mind, though, Randolph Carter is not a 75-year-old woman confined to her house. He's got stuff to look forward in the real world. He's still got, you know, either a life to live in the Dreamlands, which his friend does, you know, uh, I can't remember his friend off the top of his head, but, you know, goes uh, off to live in... Not not Pikmin, different friend. The one that goes oh, okay. off to live in Cephalese, and he visits in uh, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadoth. Um, but also in the real world, he's got time to do um, probably decades before he becomes of Agnes's age. Agnes, on the other hand, what does she have to look forward in the real world? And it's kind of an interesting compare and contrast between her predicament and Randolph Carter's predicament. Uh, I guess a third predicament is you can throw Gary Myers into the mix and someone gets stabbed in the back. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I have uh, another point to make uh, with regards to Lovecraft and how the story fits. Um, the uh, Tubigoth uh, monster. Uh, what did you think of that monster? That was the big, oily, tentacly monster? Mm-hmm. See, again, it's one of those things where... I, I like this type of stuff. It's it's a Lovecraftian critter that's a you know an original creation. And, and it's you know I, I guess it's it's like going to a buffet. Sometimes you're in the mood of straight up I want it from Lovecraft, and other times you want I want to try something new. And you know the buffet offers both. Sometimes you're in the mood for one. Sometimes you're in the mood for the other. You you praise the execution of one over to the other depending on how capable the writer's hands are. I will always kind of champion, you know, original creation that's done very well over a adapted creation that's not done very well at all. Because usually those lead to things like cameos and winks and nods. And yeah, those are ha-ha funny every now and then. If I may, I guess this sums up very well. I'm currently playing a Lovecraft game called The Sinking City. And it's actually a really cool game. This is a side tangent here, but, you know... You're in a New England town. It's been hit by this flood. It's halfway underwater. There's there's some really cool, unique Lovecraft stuff to it. You know, there isn't a Cthulhu. The, the main monster is called Kythagonar. On the other hand, you have Innsmouth people who are refugees here. And they, for all purposes, they're Innsmouth people from the story. But here, they're not clear-cut evil. They're actually treated like refugees, and that's where the racism is directed at. The thing that drives me nuts about the game though is the freaking lovecraft easter eggs like example you'll be in your boat driving around town because it's a flooded town so you have to drive around on a boat and you'll pass by something that says like um Watley's Pharmacy, I think, or West's, Herbert West's Pharmacy or something. And there's a, and another sign that says, like, Watley Greenery or something. And the problem is this is a low-budget game, so they reuse textures. So you'll walk down the street and you'll pass by Herbert West MD like four times. Now, obviously, it's an Easter egg for Herbert West Reanimator. And, you know, had that been in the game like once, you're like, oh, cool, hey, Herbert West Easter egg, that's cool. But because it's such a reuse thing, it's everywhere. And I can't help but groan at that. Again, side tangent, but I see that in a lot of subpar Lovecraft writings um, where, where, 
the Lovecraft stuff is tossed in as an Easter egg. Uh, in fact, I think it was O1 Publishing. They, they did one of their comics, their detective comics, where the character goes into the to the Silver Key Inn. And it's an Easter egg. And at the same time, eh, cool Easter egg. But at the same time, like, it doesn't do anything, you know. Call it something else if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, this monster here, it's not an Easter egg. It's not an adaptation of something else. It, to me, it's something really new. And also, it feels anime-ish as well. I made that kind of point earlier. This feels like a Lovecraft anime. Which, as we know from our mm-hmm. prior podcasts, folks, with the ta- uh, Gao Tanabi, which is manga, that anime slash manga lends very well to Lovecraft stuff. And I think you could have a really cool Dreamland story. I could see an anime heroine with this kick-ass Sailor Moon sword fighting a tentacle monster. And we've seen anime tentacle monsters before. And I don't mean the, um, uh, the Law Blue Girl Roshki Doshki variety here. But like, um, at Ulfin Lead or something where you have a, a kind of a tentacly uh, massive tar-like monster that you can fight against. I, I've seen these visuals before. I like these visuals. It's nice to see that in the story put to inventive usage. And I think the battles played out that it's not just a one-sided battle. There's actually the chance that our heroine could lose. There's actually a scene where even after she's like beat it, you know, her sword is dug into this critter. It's like sizzling through her shoes. She can feel the heat and the scars and everything inflicting on her. And that's not stuff you would normally read in a an overpowered sword and sorcery tale where barbarians like oh i hacked it together and i feel enraged you know there there is some subtlety in that battle so i think it's um it was a good battle with a cool monster and after she's done fighting that because before she just got done killing legions of these other kind of barbarian critters you know she's just laying there "Ah, what next and there's a whole other army come you're like ah crap yeah um, what I will say about uh, the Tubigoth uh, creature is that, uh, yeah, I was thinking uh, this would be great as an anime, but when you, when you spoke about uh, playing the uh, video game, The Sinking City, that reminded me and cued me into kind of that, that smoky, atmospheric monsters that you sometimes uh, run into uh, while you're playing the game. And I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, I was reminded of that, but then I'm also reminded, actually, of Ramsey Campbell's uh, Glacky okay. uh, monster. Um, thinking back to those stories, and folks, if you haven't listened to our podcast from April, April about the children of Glacky, um, uh, it was Campbell's it, uh, monster in that, and also in John Langan's uh, the, mirror. The, the Mirror. The Mirror. The Campbell's monster is more turtley spine but he has the tentacles but the john langan monster the mirror world one yeah yeah, the way that's described is very uh not tar like but like kind of a black mass with appendages and other stuff so Mm -hmm. yeah definitely uh with that as well and yeah absolutely so yeah go 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 back a couple episodes folks to our children of glacky and on the way there, make sure you stop by the Gautanabi episodes, too. In fact, you know what? Now is a good time to play catch-up on a lot of our episodes. <laughs> uh, no shameless plug- plugs there. Um, I do want to say uh, we have one more point, but I do want to say... I got one more point as well. A Kind of a, a bleh thing. Okay. Well, I do want to say that um, unlike uh, uh, Sims from the first uh, story, 
Uh, Jason Scott Atkin is the host and producer of Pulp Crazy. Um, he has a uh, website, pulpcrazy.com. It's a video blog and podcast dedicated to classic pop culture, characters, and themes. Um, he enjoys pinning fantasy and horror tales, especially sword and sorcery and, rare f- and weird fiction. Um, he's also got a website, uh, jasonscottatkin.com. He's so, actually able to be tracked down in like So we can sense. track him down and say, hey, good job. <laughs> so uh, you had one more point? Yeah, uh, there's a couple, kind of two other things. If there is one minor thing about the story, um, it is that this is an instance where Lovecraft's racism does show up. And I don't think that's on the fa- fault of Aiken. He's just playing with what the sandbox offers him. And you could take a sandbox and do a lot of inventive stuff. And I think both him and Sims in their respective stories have done that, and they've done it very well. I think uh, Aiken stays more true to Lovecraft with the geography, the setting, the dreamland, staring, the monsters. And I think because he's more true to Lovecraft, a little bit of that Lovecraft racism steeps up here. And I'm, I'm, I'm of course, referring to the Anudo, Because, you know, when you're reading the Sims story, you see the Dagu, you immediately think of Dagon, oh, there's a connection there. The Anudo obviously is a jab at the Inuit. And, you know, when you're reading about this, um, our heroine slashing down, you know, barbarian hordes of the Anudo, I think there's the implication there that, you know, they're, they're fighting against indigenous people. Our indigenous people are barbaric or whatnot. Again, I don't think that's uh, uh, Atkins' is, you know, fault per se. He's just playing with the monsters that Lovecraft has you know brought forth but it keeps that kind of dialogue going of you know how much of lovecraft's writing you know is racist how much of it permeates through through the decades because a lot of these stories you know have seen decades of working reworking reinterpretation reimagining building off of um you know, compare it to, you know, Sims's work, where it's obviously kind of, like you're saying, it's more of a commentary on post-colonialism, where this one probably isn't as such. And so, I, I, the thing is, I don't have an answer for that, because, again, as a prequel story to Polaris, that was the, the critters that Lovecraft came up with, and that's the angle that... Um, Aiken is playing with, he doesn't, he, he's, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, he's probably edged into a, a bad corner of the tools provided by Lovecraft are the crappy tools, and Aiken is doing the best he can with them. It's just, you know, uh, that's just the kind of way it is. It's not the, the best scenario to be in, but it is there. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think <laughs> that that's, that's probably the the downside when you are picking a kernel from a story and writing your own imagining of that tale, yet trying to stay true within the Dreamland's mythos and the fact that, um, yeah, I I think it's well said. I think he he kind of ended up in a corner and he had to go with it because in the in the original material, that's the in, the Inutos were the people that were being fought at uh, Dacos. I guess kind of, you know, wrapping up things here before we kind of transition to the end of the podcast is we got two swords people here. The, you know, Agnes in Sword of Lamar and Modu in Modu. And, you know, how do they kind of compare and contrast? Because I think we got two very distinct impressions of a classic sword and sorcery characters. You know, Modu is, you know, a young 
male who we see his training to become a better warrior, while in this story you have Agnes who's a, an older lady who has to become young, but she becomes another person who's already gifted with all this stuff. But both of them have sequences of, you know, it's them taking on hordes of other troops, uh, but they also feel the battle fatigue of, you know, just by sheer numbers is what's going to take these two warriors down. Um, you know, they're, they're both very similar, but I, I would say at the same time they're both very distinct as well. Yeah, um, I, I would agree. Um, actually, as you were speaking, I, I actually kind of cued into something else, which I think allows these two genres to work well. And that is Lovecraft's uh, narrative tool which is to create the unreliable narrator. And I think we actually have that in both of these stories um, and through both of these genres. Um, you know, you have these people that are warriors, they do these extraordinary things, um, whether they're the chosen one or a person that just, you know, uh, is everyday person who ends up in an extraordinary circumstances it's always going to be skewed and there's always going to be a question of that reliable narrator. So I apologize for kind of like sidestepping and going a slightly different route, but that was what I was thinking about as you were, were speaking about the two characters. I think they were both, I think they both work, um, but it also uh, subtly lends well to that unreliable narrator. Well, in Modu, we talked about before, the narrator isn't necessarily unreliable, but his mom is. And he, the narrator even points that out. In this one, there is that hint of possibility of what's going on through Agnes's head isn't actually happening. That she did dream this all up. It, maybe she entered the dreamlands, maybe she didn't. And, you know, at the end, when she's in the asylum, it does cast doubt on her own accountability. I, I'm always a fan of when I read stories that... Whatever transpires, whatever is what transpires, because I think it makes it a bit more interesting. But at the same time, you do have to entertain the idea of, well, <laughs> sometimes what we read is not what's going on. And and sometimes that that's actually a good thing. You know, movies like Memento or whatnot can be played to, to great effect over the reliableness of the account that you've just read. So... I think on that note, let's take a short break and listen to a little bit more Ring Bearers uh, and Caligon <laughs> before we share upcoming events news. Again, we'd like to thank Ringbearer, a project of Jeremy Evil, for allowing us to use snippets of his song Encolagon from his release Dragons as our episode's transitional music. 
Uh, Jaren does uh, excellent uh, dungeon synth music, and we couldn't think of any better music for a sword and sorcery discussion than his work. Uh, his album can be found for sale at his Bandcamp page, and we'll provide a link to that in the show notes. And in our upcoming HP Lovecast Presents Fragments, in Episode 3, we have a special guest, horror writer Kathleen Kaufman, who has a brand new novel out, Cinder, uh, which is book two of her Devil series that's spelled D-I-A-B-H-A-L. That book will release on the 27th, uh, so you'll get a sneak peek of a brand new Cinder book that will be out on October 27th. Uh, That interview will post on Saturday, October 18th. Upcoming on Scholars from the Edge of Time, we will have a new episode streaming on Thursday, October 22nd at 6 p.m., that's Pacific Coast time, and available afterwards for download. Um, In September, our guests were Stephen Lake and Tiffany Caramel Lake, husband-wife cosplay couple, who have represented a number of IPs at various uh, SoCal pop culture events over the past few years. If you like insight into the world of cosplay and how it can deepen one's love and appreciation for an IP, don't miss this episode. A link is in the show notes below. And on our next HP Lovecast, on episode 33, we will discuss uh, Kitch Johnson's 2016 novella, The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow. Fans of H.P. Lovecraft's Dreamlands will be especially interested in this podcast that will drop on Sunday, November 1st. Copies of this novella can be purchased at your favorite online bookseller. H.P. Lovecast can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and you can email us at hplovecast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by purchasing our books. Michelle has a book called James Bond and Popular Culture and Horror in Space, Critical Essays of a Film Subgenre. I have The New Peplum, and we both have horror literature from Gothic to postmodern critical essays. We both have Amazon pages with links to these books. However, our publisher, McFarlane, they're currently doing a horror Halloween uh, sale for October. And between now and Friday, October the 16th, if you purchase a horror book, and of course, you know, <laughs> Michelle's got horror in space and we both got uh, from Gothic to Postmodern, if you use the code HORROR at checkout, you'll get 40% off your order. So as always, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we wish you all the very best. Please keep safe and stay healthy.